Today being Christmas Day, certainly it is a good time to talk about the Incarnation. The Incarnation, talking about God becoming human flesh, God coming to this earth. And it is the reason for this season which we celebrate. So today I'd like us to look at that topic today in our message, so as we search the scriptures, and as we'll travel through different passages today, uh, let us reflect upon this truth. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah, the prophet spoke in Isaiah chapter 9, and in verses 6 and 7, he prophesied about the coming Messiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, for it says, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, and to establish it with judgment, with justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And then in the New Testament, John chapter 1, John chapter 1, there are three Gospels which give an account, three of the four Gospels which give an account of the birth of Christ, Matthew and Luke give specific accounts, whereas John gives us an account which details God becoming human flesh. In John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. <clears throat> there, John describes the incarnation. The Word was made flesh. When we go back to the book of Luke, back to the book of Luke, in chapter 1 there, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary. In Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 26, there's an announcement given. It says, In the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused or engaged to a man whose name was Joseph 
of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and shalt bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. We turn over a page to Luke chapter 2. And we see the actual fulfillment of this message which came by the angel Gabriel. In Luke chapter 2, it says, It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger." And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. When they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Now, Most everyone knows the Christmas story, and we read the account of it in the scriptures, and it is a wonderful story. 
You read about the angels, the shepherds, and then in Matthew's account, in chapter 2, we read about the wise men who came and who had followed the star from the east, and there they brought their gifts to the king who was born. But the significance of the birth of Christ is found in the pages of Scripture. It's not just a wonderful story. It's just not a, a holiday that we celebrate. But what is this actual significance of Jesus Christ being born? Because if we miss the significance of his birth, we're lost eternally. Why did God send Jesus Christ to be born? Why was the Word made flesh, as John describes it in his gospel? The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And that's, of course, <clears throat> the definition of the word incarnation, to be made flesh. You see, God is a spirit. They should worship Him, must worship Him in spirit and in truth. But God revealed Himself to us by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. In Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, Paul gives the account of the humility of Christ as he came to this earth and became human, became a man. In Philippians chapter 2, and beginning in verse 5, Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So here we have the account of Jesus Christ humbling himself. God made flesh. God come in the likeness of human flesh. He came as a servant. But for what purpose did Jesus come? What was God's plan? Why was it necessary that God take upon himself a human body? Of course, we know that Jesus was fully man. <clears throat> the scriptures um, present Jesus Christ not only as God, but also as man. He is called the God-man. He lived among us. He had a human body. He was born. He learned. He grew. He came in weakness. He came as a servant. He experienced hunger, fatigue, pain, and suffering. He experienced human emotions. We see he weeps. He experienced sadness. He experienced frustration. He experienced the contradiction or the antagonism of sinners against himself. He became angry. And in all of this, he lived a sinless life. Though he was fully man, he was without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For he, speaking of the Father, speaking of God the Father, for he hath made him, speaking of the Son, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
Jesus lived a sinless life. He humbled himself to become obedient. And as Paul described in Philippians 2, verse 8, he became obedient even unto death, death of the cross. He suffered. He was made capable of suffering that he might suffer. He became mortal that he might die. Isaiah prophesied back in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, speaking of the coming Messiah, he says in verse 3, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. And here, of course, <clears throat> Isaiah brings out the fact that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came to do what? He came to bear the sins of the world. Jesus was fully man, but he was also fully God. Last, last week, we looked at the proofs of Scripture of the divinity or the fact that Jesus was indeed fully God. We have the announcement of the angel. We have the testimony of John, the testimony of the miracles of Jesus Christ. He raised the dead, healed the sick. He caused the blind to see, gave the deaf back their hearing, healed lepers. And so we have the testimony of his miracles, but his own claims in his relationship to the Father, I and my Father are one. We see his sinlessness. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Yet he died. But even after his death, he rose from the grave. We see the fulfillment of prophecy. We see his ability to forgive sins and to give eternal life. And even today, we still see his power to change men's lives. As Paul recounts in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. He was fully God, yet he was fully man. But why was it necessary for Jesus to come in human flesh? And this is the key to this season. It really is. You must understand why Jesus was born. Why did God come in human flesh? Why did he take upon himself a human body? Why didn't he come as an angel or some type of superhuman um, creature? He came in humility, God coming to dwell among men as man. Well, <clears throat> this had to do with the purpose of his coming. Why did Jesus come to this earth? Matthew gives us a good answer. In Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28, Jesus there is speaking 
the disciples were discussing among themselves who would be the greatest in the coming kingdom. But Jesus answers them, and in verse 26 says, Whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister or your servant. And whosoever will be the chief among you, let him be your servant. And then verse 28, Jesus says something that is very revealing. He says, even as the Son of Man, he's speaking of himself, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. When you think of kings and rulers, you think of those who are constantly attended to by an enormous number of servants, courtiers, um, bakers, uh, all kinds of people, all serving their every desire, making sure that everything is just right and in order for their day. Sometimes I think I'd like to be king. (laughs) But Jesus, the Son of God, did not come to be ministered unto, but it says he came to minister. He came to serve, but not only to serve, but to give his life a ransom for many. He came to die. In Hebrews chapter 10, the book of Hebrews, we spent many years going through Hebrews. It should be very familiar to you. But in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10, it says here, By the will of God, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Why was it necessary for Jesus to come in human flesh? Well, he came to be a sin offering. You see, the law that God gave stated that the punishment for sin was death. Death is the punishment for sin. It always has been, it still is, and it always will be. God's punishment for sin is death. Do you remember the Garden of Eden? When God spoke to Adam and Eve there in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17, and he said, you may freely eat of all the trees of the garden except this one. And you are not to eat of this tree. For in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. It was the only one rule, that, the one, only prohibition that God gave was that there was one tree of which they were not to eat. But what was the penalty? If they did eat of that tree, they would certainly and most assuredly die. Well, the rest is history, so to speak. They did eat of that tree. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so that death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. What are the two sure things in life? Besides taxes, they say it's death, right? (laughs) Okay. Death is most assured. You cannot escape life without meeting up with death. But why do people die? Why is there death in the world? Because of sin. Death entered because of sin. The law states that the punishment for sin is death. Ezekiel 18.20, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Now, I didn't make that rule. Man didn't make that rule. God decreed that from the beginning. This is God's rule. 
We all face death because we are sinful people. Death is a result of sin. And from the beginning and for all time, death will be and has been the penalty for sin. Well, in the Old Testament, as you read through the Scriptures, God gave the system of sacrifices. He gave the Jews a whole way to worship Him. And it was built upon a sacrificial system. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, as you read through the Old Testament, they were continually offering bulls. They're offering lambs and different animals that were offered for different offerings. And their blood was shed. And the whole Old Testament sacrificial system was a system of substitution. Instead of the people dying for their sins, they brought an animal which was sacrificed and its blood was shed in the place of the sinner, the one who was offering the sacrifice. Yet, even so, the Bible says that the blood of bulls and goats could not cleanse the sin problem. Hebrews 10 and verse 4, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. So the Old Testament sacrificial system was incomplete. It was impotent. The blood of animals could never take away sin. But why was it given? Why did God give that Old Testament sacrificial system? He gave it as a picture of what was to come. It was a picture of a sacrifice that would be to come that would satisfy the sin problem. And of course, as John introduced Jesus, what did John the Baptist call Jesus? He says, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. In the Old Testament, the blood of bulls and goats did not take away sins. What did God do? God had mercy on the people because of their obedience. They obeyed in offering sacrifices. In doing so, they were exercising faith. They were believing what God had said. God had promised to send a Messiah, a deliverer, one who would take care of the sin problem, of which the sacrifices were just a picture. The Old Testament sacrifices were a type or a picture of the reality of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. But because animal sacrifice could not cleanse away the sins of man, God took no pleasure in burnt offerings. He was not satisfied. Hebrews 10 verse 6 says, In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure, or thou hast had no satisfaction. Man's sin left a great sin debt that had to be paid. The animal offerings, the blood of bulls and of goats, did not pay for that sin. But here in Hebrews chapter 10, after he says, In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure, then said I, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. <clears throat> The Old Testament high priests, the ones who offered the sacrifices, they were limited by death. They, in, they themselves indeed were in need of atonement. And in Romans chapter 3, when we go back to the book of Romans chapter 3, we see here how Christ's death actually made satisfaction 
where those animal sacrifices did not. In Romans chapter 3, speaking of our justification, being made righteous in the sight of God, let's begin at verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And look at what God did. Speaking of Christ Jesus, it says in verse 25, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation or a satisfaction through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness or the righteousness of God for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. God overlooked those sins of the Old Testament. How did he overlook? Well, he allowed the sacrificial system, that temporary system, to have its place. And as the people offered those sacrifices, they were acting in faith. But God did not um, demand satisfaction from those people. The animal sacrifices were given, and they offered them in obedience, and their faith was demonstrated through their obedience. But it says here that God was forbearing. He held back His wrath upon those people. And how could God be righteous in doing so? Well, because He was waiting to send His Son, Jesus Christ, who would be the ultimate sacrifice to cover all of the sins of the Old Testament saints, all of the sins of those who had yet to be born who would place their faith and trust in Him. And God sent Jesus Christ to be a satisfaction of those sins, which defended what God did in declaring the Old Testament saints to be righteous. How could God declare Abraham to be righteous? when his sins had not yet been paid for. Well, Abraham, by faith, offered the sacrifice that God asked for. By faith, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. But Abraham's sins were paid for at the cross by the death of Jesus Christ, who was the Lamb of God, who gave himself for the sins of the world. In <clears throat> Sin had to be punished, the Scripture says, in human flesh. In Hebrews 9.22, back in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 9.22, it says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And Jesus Christ was made flesh for the purpose of taking upon himself our penalty of death. He came to take my place. He came to take your place and to accept the punishment that God exacts for sin, and that is death. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, says, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Again, Jesus Christ came, took upon himself a human form that he might suffer in the place of men 
for the sins of men. God designed a human body for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 10, verse 5, it says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. And there the writer of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 40. God's justice demanded that sin be punished in human flesh. The bulls and the goats that were offered, they hadn't sinned. They were dumb animals. They hadn't done anything. But they were an example, a type, a picture of the one who would come. It was absolutely essential that Jesus Christ come in human flesh so that he might be a suitable substitute for sinful man. And this is what we understand from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. He says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, and here is Jesus speaking, the Son says, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And here in this passage, Jesus Christ really is saying that God's justice was not satisfied with the blood of the Old Testament sacrifices. It didn't cleanse away sin, but God had specifically designed a human body for Jesus that would be human and yet sinless. He would not have to die for his own sins because he had no sin. Here's the necessity of the virgin birth. Therefore, Jesus could be the propitiation or the satisfaction of God's justice. When Jesus came into the world, he says, He came to do thy will, O God. And God prepared a body, a human body. This is why the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ willingly, the Bible says, and gladly took upon himself flesh and blood. In Hebrews chapter chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus willingly and gladly took upon himself human flesh and blood for the purpose of death. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, it says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death, He might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. So Jesus Christ came. He took upon himself a human body that he might suffer and that he might die in the place of sinful men. And God did punish sin, as He had promised, in human flesh. If you go back to Romans, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, 
and verse 3. Here this verse says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. This is an amazing verse. What is Paul saying in this verse? Well, in verse 3, what the law could not do. God gave the law. We know what people, you ask people, what is the law? Oh, well, you're not supposed to kill, steal, you know, that should not covet, that should not commit adultery. And they can list off many of the commandments. But what was the law given for? And this is the reason for the whole book of Galatians. The book of Galatians was written to help us to understand what, was, what the purpose of the law. What was it? Was it so that man could live up to God's standard? No. For if there had been a law given by which we could have been righteous, then righteousness would have been by works. God's law was not given as a standard for man to live up to so that he could be acceptable to God. In fact, it was given for the very opposite reason. It was to show man that he was utterly sinful. For who has kept the whole law? Not one of us. Every one of us. When we look at the law, what does the law say to us? The law doesn't reach out a hand and say, congratulations, you are worthy. No, the law looks at every one of us and it points a finger and it says guilty. 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 That's all it can do. There's nothing wrong with the law, by the way. Paul says that in Romans chapter 7. The law's not sinful. The law's not bad. The law's not defective. What's defective? It's us. For there is something in every one of us that we are born with that when the law says it's black, no, we say no, it's white. And when the law says it's white, we say oh, no, it's black. When we're told we can't have something, all of a sudden we find out, guess what? We want it. We never wanted it before. In fact, it really never crossed our minds. But as soon as the law says you can't have it, well, <laughs> I, I want it. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? You know what that's called? That's called a sin nature. And that is someone, something that every one of us since Adam has been born with. Ever since Adam sinned and plunged in the entire human race into a sinful state, every person is born a sinner. We are sinners by birth. We are sinners by choice. We do not have to train our little children to lie. We don't have to train them to fight. We don't have to train them to be selfish. That just seems to come naturally, doesn't it? Indeed it does. What do we have to train them? Well, we have to train them to do right. Train them to tell the truth. Train them to share with others. Train them not to fight with their brothers and sisters. Teach them manners. That's a lifelong project right there. But there it is. We're born sinful. There's nothing wrong with the law, but what did the law have to work with? Well, it had just humanity. And so what the law could not do, the law could not make man righteous. Just telling a person he can't do something doesn't cure the problem. I mean, don't we see that in our world today? If you know the scripture... When you look at our government, it makes you cringe. Because what does the government think they need to do? We've got so much crime, we need more laws. 
Really? Well, if your criminals are breaking the laws now, that just means they're going to break more laws if you pass more laws. It doesn't mean they're going to suddenly realize, oh, goodness, look at all the laws I'm breaking. I should stop breaking laws. The thing is, that's the foolishness of man apart from the wisdom of God. What does the wisdom of God show us? It shows us that man is inherently sinful. And just bringing in more laws only means that more laws will be broken because for the what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. The flesh will not be made subject to God's law. It cannot be. It will not be. And he says that just down there in verse 7. It is not subject to the law of God. So, what's the problem in 8.3, Romans 8.3, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God solved this problem. And this is what this verse is describing. What did God do? Since the law was powerless to make man righteous, and by the way, that's not even the reason it was given. It was given to show men sinfulness. So what did God do? Well, God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came to live on the earth as a human you know, he says the likeness of sinful flesh, in other words, like us, though he was not sinful, he was fully man. It says he came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Those two words are very important. The words for sin mean, in the original language, a sin offering. God sent his son to become a man, to live in human flesh, to become an offering for sin. That's why God sent Jesus Christ. And as an offering for sin, what happened? Jesus Christ died on the cross, and the Bible says that God made Him to be sin for us. All of our sins were placed on Him, and God's wrath against sin was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. And so Jesus Christ was made an offering for sin so that, and look at the end of the verse, in the end, what happened? God condemned sin in human flesh. Whose flesh? Jesus Christ. God poured out His judgment. He condemned sin in human flesh. A man must die for the sins of man. Animal sacrifices, they were temporary, but they didn't satisfy the sin problem. The animals had never sinned. The Bible says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. What did Jesus Christ do? He came in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering so that God could condemn sin and judge sin in human flesh. That is the whole reason for Jesus Christ coming as a baby at what we celebrate at Christmas time, there Jesus was born. He was placed in a manger. But what is the significance? The significance is that God was providing a sacrifice, a human form that would carry the sin of men and upon whom God's wrath would be poured out so that he could condemn sin in the flesh. But it doesn't stop there, folks. If you look at Romans 8, 4, Jesus, God condemned sin in Jesus Christ so that so that the righteousness of the law, that perfection which the law demands, might be fulfilled in us. 
who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So what happened? Jesus Christ was made sin for us. God placed our sins upon Him that we might have the righteousness that He possesses. You see, God does not accept the righteousness of good works. And that is the difference between biblical Christianity. That's the difference with Bible, the Bible teaches and every other religion in the world. You want to do a comparative religion study? I'll solve it for you right here. Every religion on the face of this earth without fail, and I stake my life on this statement. This is a true statement. Every religion out there, except for what the Bible teaches, every religion teaches that man must be good and merit favor with God by good works. If you're good enough, you can achieve God's favor. But you know what the Bible says? And the Bible is the only true religion, and it teaches this. You can't be good enough because you're a sinner. You cannot be good enough. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace, by the way, what is grace? It's undeserved kindness. For by grace are ye saved, or brought back into fellowship with God. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Every other religion in the world allows men to boast, because they are working to merit favor with God. But folks, it doesn't work, because what does God say? God is not impressed with our righteousness. In fact, if we took all the good works of all men together and heaped them in a big pile and offered them to God, it says that they would just be a pile of filthy rags. There is only one righteousness that God accepts. And what righteousness is that? Well, it's the righteousness of His Son in Romans chapter 10. Paul is speaking there of the Jews. He's so concerned about them because they are so intent on keeping the law, but in doing that, they are missing the entire point. In Romans 10.3, he says, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. When you stand before God, you will stand in one of two conditions. You will either stand there having the righteousness of Jesus Christ, God's Son, credited to your account by faith, or you will stand before God holding your own righteousness, your own good works, and offering those. And God will not accept the righteousness of man. God does not accept the righteousness of the law. That's not the kind of righteousness He is looking for. He is looking for the righteousness of His Son, which is freely offered to those who ask Him for it. To those who by faith accept and believe that Jesus Christ came to die for my sins. And when I believe that, and what happens is my sins are transferred to him who paid for them, and his righteousness is credited to my account so that when I stand before God, I don't stand there trying to show off my good works. I stand there clothed with perfect righteousness, the righteousness of his sinless son, Jesus Christ which has been credited to my account freely by grace. 
Here were the Jews in, in Romans 10 trying to establish their own righteousness. They were trying to fulfill all these little details of the law to try to merit favor with God. But Paul says in verse 4, Christ is the termination point. He is the fulfillment of the law for righteousness. To whom? To everyone that believes. Oh. The thing is, if you had to work your way to heaven, how would you know when you'd done enough works? How would you know if you'd really achieved enough? There's no way. And it doesn't matter anyway, because the Bible says, for whosoever shall keep the whole law, yet offend in one little point, he's guilty of all. Guilty. So salvation. God punished sin in human flesh, the flesh of His Son, and by offering His body as a sacrifice for sin, Jesus Christ did away with and fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system. And He established Himself as the only acceptable sacrifice that pleased God. By the way, this is why the incarnation is absolutely essential. This is why God was made flesh. A man must die for the sins of men, and yet that man must be sinless and therefore must also be God. Jesus is the God-man. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Hebrews 10.10 says, And so it was by God's will that we are sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What has Jesus Christ accomplished in his death? He has made possible reconciliation with God. Man can be in fellowship with a holy God. Do you have Christ's righteousness? Or are you still trying to achieve peace with God by just good works? By doing your best. Let me close with a story from John chapter 4. John chapter 4, Jesus was there in Samaria speaking to the Samaritan woman, one who really had quite a sinful past. Jesus is at Jacob's well. His disciples have gone into the city to get some food. He's sitting there, and this woman comes out to draw water. And she comes out to draw water, and Jesus says to her, Give me to drink, because the disciples were gone away. It says in verse 9, Then the woman of Samaria said unto him, How is it that you, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. We don't get along. Why are you talking to me? And I want you to notice Jesus' answer in verse 10. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. My question is for you today. Do you know the gift of God? Do you? The Samaritan woman didn't know who she was talking to. And Jesus said, if you knew 
what was available. If you knew who I was and what I had to offer, you would have asked me for a drink and I would have given you living water. And what did he mean by living water? He's talking about eternal life. Eternal life. Romans 10, verse 13. The Bible says there, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How do you receive the gift that Jesus Christ offers? Well, the Bible says, with the heart man believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. There's no difference between the Jew and Greek. The same Lord over all is rich unto all who call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Salvation, eternal life, is a free gift that is offered. It is the best gift that has ever been offered to man. And by the way, if you leave life without this gift, you are eternally lost. For the Bible says, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Life is short, and eternity is awfully long. Are you prepared have you received the gift of eternal life? This is why Jesus came. This is why God was made flesh to provide us with salvation so that we would take care of the sin problem, that which separates man from God. And he made it in such a way that all could receive. Any who calls upon him receives salvation. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you received that gift? Make sure that you do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this season upon which we reflect and consider the greatest gift that was ever offered. Lord, we thank you that you have provided salvation to unworthy people and Lord, you did not require us to somehow become worthy by just being good, but by simply believing what you have done and accepting Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Lord, you have done away with our sin. You have clothed us with the righteousness of Christ. And Lord, when you see us, you don't see us as sinful. You see us having the righteousness of your Son, and you accept us. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that each one here today has received you. And Lord, if they have not, Lord, that they would give great consideration to that which you freely offer because of your great love for us. For this we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.